Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Our Bible readings today, we've got two. The first one is from Exodus 12, and we're reading verses 1 to 20. So if you grab your Bibles, phone or paper, there are paper copies at the back if you need as well. All right. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share it with one of their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats." Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning if some is left till morning you must burn it this is how you are to eat it with your cloak cloak tucked into your belt your sandals sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand eat it in haste it is the lord's passover on the same night i will pass through egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and i will bring judgment on all the gods of egypt i am the lord the blood will be a sign for, your, for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you, sh- you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for anyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Second reading is 1 Corinthians 5, so the whole chapter. Apologies for the vegetarians for that first one. So 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud? Shouldn't you have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is no good. 
Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or adulterers. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Thanks, Lauren. Please keep uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 open uh, if you were tempted to close it. Uh, that's where we are today as we carry on in our series through 1 Corinthians. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, if you don't know who I am, I'm Jacko uh, or Simon, lead pastor here at City Light Church North Adelaide. And I, like Lauren, hopefully like all of us, is looking, I'm looking forward to celebrating our fourth birthday um, with a picnic at something called Bush Park down that way. Um, but uh, it should be a good day. Um, yeah, it's really nice to see you. Um, yeah, again, do keep that part of God's Word open. Um, there's a bunch of us away, um, sort of our regulars. Um, as I was catching up with people this week, I was going, oh, I'll see you on Sunday. And they're like, nah, man, I'm going here. And I'm like, oh, really? And then I met up with someone else. Oh, I'll see you on Sunday. Nah, I won't be there. I'm going there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, is anyone going to come to church on Sunday? Um, so welcome. Um, and uh, I'm going to pray now. I'm going to pray for those, particularly those of us who are traveling this weekend, this long weekend, and also for us as we now come to God's word, um, that we would hear God speak to us through this, what is quite a challenging text, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy towards us. Uh, Father, we thank you that you are the God uh, in, and in your goodness you, you shower rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Father, you give rest to us all and we thank you for yeah, this country that we live in that um, has these things called long weekends. Um, we, we thank you for yeah, the ability for many of us to just relax this weekend and to rest a little bit. Uh, Father, we pray, particularly this morning, for those among us here in our family at North who are unable to be with us today in person because they are travelling around our state and, and abroad. Uh, we pray for them, Lord, that they would be refreshed and encouraged and um, rested. Father, we pray particularly as well that they would be safe um, as they journey around and would return to us safely, we pray. Uh, Lord, and we pray for ourselves now as we come to your word. Uh, Father, please do speak to us through your word by the Spirit that we would see Jesus. Speak to us through your word by the Spirit that we would hear Jesus and speak through your word by your Spirit that we would love Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I've got a question on the screen for you, um, and it's a question I'm going to get you to turn to the people around you for about 38 seconds to talk about, okay? And that's the question. What does it look like to love someone well? What does it look like to love someone well? All right, turn to the person next to you, have a quick chat. And if you're getting quick, you can ask the question and force them to answer it. But go, have a quick chat, go, give you a moment. As always, I reckon you guys could just keep talking forever, uh, but that's, that's a good thing. Um, anyone, I mean, you know, 
Anyone want to want to shout out what someone else said? No, uh, shout out what they said maybe in answer to how do you what what does it look like to love someone well? Anyone want to unconditional love? Unconditional love, yeah, yeah, sure. Any other thoughts? Don't be shy. We're all friends, you know. Forgive well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's good. Anyone else? Last takers. Yeah. Loving without expectation. Yeah, of sort of receiving something back. Is that sort of, yeah, absolutely. It's good. Yeah, yeah, thanks for sharing. Um, what does it look like to love someone well? Um, I came across this article. There you go, tough love, my most excruciating night. As a parent, um, this mother describes what loving her 18-year-old drug-addicted son looked like in this article. Um, that was published in 2017 um, under that title, My Most Excruciating Night as a Parent. In, in it, she details her son's journey to kind of absolute rock bottom. Um, at one point, the police found um, the son passed out in his car, and they took him to the police station and onwards to prison. But she says that wasn't her most excruciating night. A few weeks uh, later, she describes finding him unconscious in his bedroom at home. And, and again, she says, that wasn't my most excruciating night. Finally, she reached the point of giving him an ultimatum, uh, treatment or leave the house. Uh, this is what she says, uh, describing the encounter in the article. At once he knew I was serious. It was not only in my voice, but my conviction was spewing from every cell in my body. I could see he was scared to death, but he was addicted and addicts turned their fear into anger and he grabbed his backpack, no money to his name, and he walked out of the house. But that was not the most excruciating night. One day he was gone. One day turned into four days, which turned into more days. I have no idea where he was. I had no idea where he was. I had no idea if he would ever come home and get help. I didn't know if he was alive. I couldn't eat, sleep, or communicate. I tried searching for him to no avail. I was fully absorbed in this experience. And the longer it went on, the longer it went on, the sicker I became. On the 10th night, around midnight, I heard a light tap at my door. Mum. Let me in, Mum. Open the door. I was scared to death. My heart was beating so hard it felt like tiny earthquakes in my chest. I opened the door slightly. Standing before me was my dirty, stick-thin, pale, sunken-eyed son. Mum, I need a place to sleep. I'm cold and hungry. Please. As my heart sliced itself up, I said, you don't live here anymore. You made that decision 10 days ago. You need to leave. I was turning my son away at the entrance to our home. What type of mother can look into the face of her disheveled, filthy, scared son and turn him away? I knew I had to do the most excruciating thing ever in order to save my child. It went against every instinct and every fibre of my motherly being. Would he turn around and leave again? It was an unbearable risk. The longer he stood there in the sickening silence, the more scared I became. And finally he spoke. 
I'll get help. If I asked you what is chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians all about, I wonder what words would come to your mind, what Lauren just read. Maybe judgment, anger, punishment, severity, OTT, a bit over the top, intolerant. How about love? How about love? Uh, The pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this on the screen, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. As we've seen over the past few weeks, as we've opened up the letter of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church, this group of men and women in AD 55, are in danger. What's the danger? They are ignoring sin in themselves and in others, so much so that they can't see sin anymore. And how does Paul respond? Well, he first points out the danger of not confronting our own sin, their own sin as followers of Jesus in AD 55. We have to ask the question as we come into this text, right, how did the church get to that point? How did they get to the point, right, where they they no longer see sin in themselves, they no longer see sin in others, and they just sort of don't see sin at all anymore? How did they get there? How did they get to that point? Well, a man in the church at Corinth is sleeping with his dad's wife. That's the scenario. Have a look at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Heads up, right, just as we end this, it's not going to be a particularly joyful sermon this morning. Last time I said that, I kind of made some jokes. I don't think I've got many jokes this morning. It's a pretty heavy heavy hitting message. It's reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. The verb tense in the original language makes it clear this is not like just a one-night stand or a one-off event. This is repeated, continual, unrepented kind of activity. It's probable that the woman involved is not even a believer herself. That's why the blame seems to be squarely put onto the man. She may, of course, right, she may, of course, not even be complicit in this activity. It also seems like the woman was not the man's own mother. If it had been, I think Paul would have sort of made that really clear for us. So it's almost definitely not a case of incest, as the NIV subheading unhelpfully suggests, if that's what you've got in front of you. But rather, we're dealing with a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. It's an act of immorality that was still frowned upon by the surrounding daily current culture of the time. It should have been unthinkable for the people of God. And yet the church was not responding. They weren't dealing with it. Worse, they were sending the message that they kind of actually didn't really care. They weren't really bothered about it. Now, many people today, right, you might be here today and you think, great, I've come to church, I've been at church for ages, and the church is still talking about sex Is the church ever going to stop talking about sex, and in particular prohibiting sex and highlighting the dangers of sexual sin? Perhaps, you know, perhaps you're going, man, the church just elevates sexual sin so much higher than all the other sins. What are they on about? 
Can I say really, like really clearly today, it's not that the church, the Christian church, grades sort of sexual sin any higher on the hierarchy of sin if, if there is such a thing. But see, the impact of sexual sin is so much more pervasive often than other particular sins. And the abuse of God's gift of sex can be and often is a highway for many people out of the Christian faith, out of the Christian life. As we see with this man in verse 1. But the truth be told, right, Paul, as he writes this, he seems more shocked or less shocked actually by this immoral activity than he is shocked by the church's sort of inaction around this particular issue. Look at verse 2. He says, are you proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? And verse 6 suggests that the church is actually kind of boasting about this sort of thing. He says, your boasting, verse 6, is not good. Now, this boasting could be a boast about their open-mindedness or their forgiving spirit. This doesn't sound like too far of a stretch today, right? As we think about tolerance being one of the most celebrated virtues in our modern society, Paul is shocked, though, that the church isn't filled with grief and mourning and being turned over in themselves by this particular situation. I mean, why, why do they not feel remorse? Why does this man feel like it's absolutely fine to keep carrying on doing whatever he wants without feeling even compelled to hide what he's doing? He seems to be open about this. See, what's happened is, right, the Corinthians have confused freedom in Christ that they have by grace in Christ with an ethic that has zero boundaries. They're like, we're free in Christ. That means we can just do anything we want. Where they have basically seem to have a lack of respect for the God-given bodies that they have. And if the Corinthians don't see the danger, then Paul, the apostle, certainly does. In response to this situation, Paul directs the church to gather, um, aware that Paul is not there, but Paul, with his apostolic authority and in the presence and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, they had to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Have a look at verse 4. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, because Paul's writing this letter to the church that he planted with God's help, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. It's a sobering verse, isn't it? Demanding, I think, a pretty solemn response. It's a verse that should remind us all of the seriousness of sin, our own sin, and actually cause us to grieve over it. Sin being our rejection of God's loving right rule over our lives, how he's designed us to live, really should cause us to just to pause and really do consider the seriousness of sin and cause us to grieve over our sin. Now, this is a notoriously difficult passage to understand. I mean, what does it mean to hand someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? That sounds a bit OTT, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit excessive. I mean, how could you think handing someone over to Satan will kind of, like, save them? That seems like the very opposite. But like that mother of the drug addict we heard from right at the beginning... 
Paul is willing to take this excruciating action, not because it brings him some kind of sadistic joy or some weird sense of satisfaction, but because he wishes this man be saved. It's an act of tough love, you'd agree. And no doubt goes against every fibre, every instinct that the Apostle Paul has to exclude someone from the family where Christ reigns so they can, they're no longer welcome to hang out with the church, they're no longer welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper. And we're to think twice, verse 11, about having him or her round to our house for a barbecue or dinner. Now, of course, verses 9 and 10, if you caught that as we went through, it's not preventing us from welcoming a not-yet-Christian sort of into our home, which is an important corrective that Paul gives us here. The point is, we're no longer to treat this brother or sister in Christ as a member of the family. They live outside now of Christ's church, where Satan still exercises his authority. And with every fibre of Paul's being, he's praying that this action will drive this man to his knees in repentance, that he'll see the error of his ways and turn back and throw himself back into the loving arms of Christ and his grace and his mercy. So Paul, reluctant to hand over this man into the hands of Satan, like the mother in our story, reluctant to hand her son over to the streets. It's very easy for us to look at this and think it looks like Paul is giving Satan the victory, right? But that's wrong. Let me explain. Um, Straight after 1 Corinthians comes Paul's second letter, 2 Corinthians. And in that letter, the same apostle who's writing this tells and says that anyone who is in the Lord Jesus Christ, anyone who's come to know God's grace and mercy through trusting in Jesus is a new creation, The old is gone. The new has come. Paul knows what he's doing here. He's using Satan and the world to help this man come back to his senses, to help him realize that he's he's living the life of the old man, not the new redeemed man. In Paul's New Testament letters, the flesh, which Paul, you know, Paul said, hand over this man for the destruction of his flesh, In Paul's letters in the New Testament, when he talks about flesh, he refers to the before bit of the before and after kind of process of coming into relationship with Jesus and becoming a new creation. So to hand someone over for the destruction of their flesh is akin to what we read of in Colossians chapter 3, which I think is on the screen. Here we go. Yeah. Put to death, Paul says, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. A closer reading of this passage, we see that Paul has in mind just not the dangers of sexual sin, but other sins might require such kind of serious action. Have a look with me, verse 11. should be on the screen. Chapter 5, verse 11. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such people. Paul adds here, as well as not associating with a sexually immoral person, we're also not to associate with someone who is a greedy person, an idolatrous person, or an abusive person, or a drunkard, or a dishonest person. But what does that mean? I mean, that sounds pretty comprehensive, right? Doesn't that kind of rule out everyone in the room? You know, <laughs> no one's having dinner with anyone, you know, 
No one's coming to church ever again. Like, I mean, who amongst us here, right, hasn't at some point been guilty of losing their temper or, or telling a lie or being a little bit greedy? I'm not going to show, like, do a show of hands or anything like that or turn to the person next to you and say, yes, I've done all that. No, I'm not going to do that. Paul's not speaking here about, you know, like someone who lapses occasionally into these sins but rather someone whose identity is actually marked by one or more of these. So much so that they can be actually kind of labelled a greedy person or labelled a drunkard, that they engage in habitual, systemic, systemic, unrepentant, sinful behaviour. The Christian who gets drunk and repents or the Jesus follower who commits an act of dishonesty and repents is not on view here. Does that make sense? It's a one-off. We're dealing with something that is habitual and systemic and sort of just defines the person. It's actually a person who's kind of got two competing identities. They may be known as a brother or sister, but their behaviour identifies them actually as an unbeliever. And Paul is saying we are not to associate with such a person. Now, critically... This course of action is motivated by love. By love. Firstly, it's motivated by love for the person concerned, right? This may be tough love, but it's still love, yeah? Because at the heart of these actions and these motivations is a desire that the person would wake up from the dangerous situation they find themselves in, repent and be restored into the family of God's people, that their soul will be saved when it comes to the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns and everyone faces judgment. And often there may be family involved, right? It's very important that the church demonstrates that this is an act of love by the way they care for any wives or husbands or kids or parents who are caught up in all of this. This is a time of tough love for the perpetrator, but it's the exact opposite for the family. But there's a second reason, and it's often overlooked, actually. This course of action is motivated by love for the person at the centre of it, but it's also motivated by love for the rest of the church family. There is the damage of not confronting sin in the church, and that's kind of where we move now. Now, many of us, right, believe, at least I can fall into this, where we believe that sin, personal sin, is okay as long as it doesn't impact sort of other people around us, right? If I'm just doing something, no one else is, you know, as long as no one else is getting impacted by it, that's fine. But sin, right, is never, very rarely, right, a strictly personal act, as if the only person who's impacted is me. It's never about my choices alone. Sin impacts others. When a parent sins, it always affects the children. Sin contaminates everything. Sin is like it's radioactive. It's everywhere. I know in the past few years I've heard about, you know, like this Christian, or I've heard about, you know, that believer, you know, or even I've heard about that Christian church leader who's been accused of and found guilty of, of sexual misconduct in the church. I've heard you know, of powerful and authentic stories of people being betrayed, many stories that probably weren't listened to in the past, stories that today the church cannot ignore. Yet most of the stories I've heard about that Christian or that believer or that church leader have kind of been removed from me 
you know, sort of not in my kind of network or associations and things like that. But this past week, actually, all that changed. A story that I am struggling to digest and struggling to kind of actually believe. A set of allegations against someone that I know that are really awful and that, that helped me actually to understand this passage in a way that I could really easily have missed. Even a week ago, too, I found myself marvelling right at God's timing of this particular text. Paul writes to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 6, your boasting is not good. What you think, Corinthian believers, is so good about your church is actually undercut by this horrible sin that you've permitted to go on in your midst for a long time. And so Paul continues in verse 6, do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Paul talks about a subject that everyone is writing, he's writing to will be familiar with, baking bread. And that's something that a lot of people I know have been doing a lot of in the age of corona. Anyone here sort of taken up sourdough baking? You know, I feel like we've sort of missed that boat, actually, but I feel like a lot of people have gotten on that boat and there's a lot of sourdough being made. But the Corinthian believers, right, baking bread was really well known to them. See, but he, he compares, right, the Corinthians' tolerance for ongoing sin within the church with yeast or leaven working its way through a whole batch of dough. In ancient times, right, often yeast was scarce, right, and leaven was a popular alternative. Leaven was just an old piece of dough, right, that had begun to ferment. Don't think about that for too long, right? But, you know, that's, that's kind of what's going on, this frothy bit of dough that's looking particularly unattractive. But when you added that frothing piece of leaven into a batch of, you know, dough, it would be like a starter, right? I have no idea. I've never made bread before, but it's a starter, and that spreads and ferments throughout the whole loaf, making the bread lighter and fluffier. You know, there you go. Um, the longer, though, the process continued, the greater the danger would be that the dough would become spoiled and even become poisonous, deadly. And when the dough became poisonous and deadly, then you will, you'd hopefully want to destroy that, right, and then start the process all over again. Do you understand that? That's what's going on here. It's a picture of the way that sin can just spread and ferment through a church family. I heard from a church leader, actually, earlier this year, pre the age of corona, I heard from a church leader earlier this year that within one month, one year of their former church leader committing adultery, five other leaders in that same church had committed the same thing. Spread. And it makes sense, right? The leaven had infected the whole church. And it makes sense that Paul says in verse 7, get rid of the old leaven completely. The background of that comes from the Old Testament and the Jewish Passover festival. That's why, Lauren, we read about lambs and barbecues and things like that in Exodus chapter 12. The Old Testament Passover festival, which would remind the God's original people, the Israelites, of when they were exited out of, when they were saved from slavery in Egypt under the oppression of Egypt and the Pharaoh. At that time, right, the whole nation of Israel was commanded to throw away all of their leaven and flee from slavery and oppression in Egypt. Flee from evil and sin and idolatry. Flee from Pharaoh. Free from the author of sin and evil, Satan. 
That's why each year during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jews cleanse their home of all yeast and all leaven, and that many of them still do it even today. What Paul is saying, sin is like leaven. It's unclean, it's corrupting, it's poisonous, and it just takes a little bit of sin to leaven the whole batch. He says, you know, these sins that you're turning a blind eye to, AD 55, that you're failing to address are actually a really big deal. They're having a leavening effect in your life and in the life of the whole church family. Now, let me be really clear on what Paul is not saying. He isn't saying that the rest of the church at Corinth is like a perfect bunch of people and there's just this one kind of starter, you know, sourdough starter guy in the church, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb. Now, Paul is saying, actually, we're all sinners. Everyone at the church at Corinth, you're all sinners. Everyone here, we're all sinners. Each one of us, God doesn't require God doesn't require perfection from us to remain in his church. He does require perfection, but it's not ours. It's given to us as a free gift through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only sinless, perfect one. Perfection is not also an ongoing requirement to sort of stay within the the church family, but repentance is. Paul is saying that our lives should be marked by ongoing repentance, identifying our sin, throwing ourselves afresh into the hands of our good and kind and gracious and merciful God and trusting him over again. Trusting in Christ, right? The Passover lamb who was sacrificed once and for all time for our sin. End of verse 7. That's what he says. We don't need to be perfect to come into the family of God. We need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't expect from us ongoing perfection but he does require from us ongoing repentance, a recognition that we're not perfect yet. One day we will be. But in that time, we are called to be men and women who fight sin because the place we're going to, the new creation, will be a place where there is zero sin. And we want to be those people today. It's been a, probably a challenging message this morning for a long weekend. But it's vital that we understand that Paul's words are rooted in, Jesus, in love. Rooted in love for Jesus' blood-bought church. Can't have been easy for Paul, right, to write this letter. Would have been heaps easier, right, for Paul to go, oh, I'll just forget about this, I'll ignore this. Would have been easy just to write something else. But as Bonhoeffer earlier reminded us, nothing can be more compassionate, more loving than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Paul extends his love to the church a little further with a a final plea in the middle of verse 7. He says, Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. He's saying, become what you already are. Back in chapter 1, verse 2, Paul addresses the members of this church in Corinth. He says, you are those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be what? Holy, set apart for God's purposes. 
The old flesh is gone. He says, you're a new creation. And we've been called to be the light of the world, to live lives that reflect the work of God's grace and his mercy in our lives. This is who we really are. So verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, let's keep the festival. He says, let's be Passover people. Not just once a year, but every day. People who live every day in the wonderful light of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. I don't know, if this year, 2020, and what I've now called the age of corona, if the age of corona is doing anything for many of us, right, it's just giving us an opportunity, right, to reset to reevaluate who we really are, what really matters to us. I mean, here's a question for you. Do you depend entirely on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cleanse you of your sin? If yes, then we are called with the help of the Holy Spirit to pursue that calling to which we, by grace, have been called to, to live as saints, not those funky saints that you see pictured with halos around their heads, but saints, men and women called into the kingdom, called into the family of God's people. Clean out, Paul says, any rotten leaven in your life that is dragging you back into old patterns of the ways you used to be. Do you know that Christ has created you to be a fresh, holy, new batch of dough for his glorious purposes? If yes, then celebrate the Passover festival every day. This is not in my notes. Adele's in kids' church, so I can say this because she's not going to give me that look of like, don't go there, you know, um, because she should do this. Look at the time. No. This is very much an aside. In our our DG the other night, it was just brought up, right, that um, this person said, I've been at our church for a long time and no one's actually rebuked me before. No one's rebuked me. No one sort of pulled me up and said, oh, that's probably not great for you. You know, turn away from that and turn back to Christ. It was just something that stood out to me. And perhaps here, right, where the church at Corinth was prone just to overlook stuff. And and yet we've, we've seen here the danger of what that can be. I found that a really challenging comment. The person who said that, you know, just the next hour just started rebuke, rebuke. No, I didn't do that. But I think there's, we, need, we want to be a church in love, right? And when we see someone in our church making a decision, which is, it's like they're walking to the edge of a cliff and there's like a 400-meter drop onto some rocks below. You don't just say, oh, yeah, keep going. It's going to be fun down there. You don't do that, right? We, we, we grab them and we say, don't do that. It's not going to end well for you. And if we don't stop there, it's not going to end well for all of us. Just a, a word. As I finish, let's go back to the story of the mum and her drug-addicted son. I don't know, maybe you need help this morning. The son was only able to return home when he had finally acknowledged that he needed help. Maybe you're here this morning and and you're trapped. There's a sin in your life which you just, just can't 
it's, it's got you. Are you living a secret life? Do you long to change and, and become who you already are in Jesus? Then begin by being honest. Honest with yourself. Honest with those you love. Honest with God. I'm just going to give us a moment before I pray, before we sing, just to, to, in your own space, in your own time, just to reflect, maybe pray. Think about maybe those parts of your life where you've, you're just drifting back to the old person and not embracing the new. Just ask God to help you in that space and then I'll, I'll pray. How about we do that? Give you a, a few minutes. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batched, batch as you really are. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you and thank you this morning for the Lord Jesus, your one and only Son, uh, who laid down his life for sinners like us. Father, we thank you for Jesus' sinlessness. Thank you for his obedience to you. Thank you for his perfection and Lord, thank you for the, the good news of the gospel that reminds us that we don't have to have it all together before we come to you. In fact, you, just, you call us to come as we are. Thank you for the gift that you've given us of repentance and faith in Jesus. And thank you that when we trust Jesus, Lord, Jesus' perfection becomes ours. Jesus' righteousness becomes ours. And we remember, we remind, we don't deserve that. It's all of grace. We also praise you, Lord, that you've called us into your family to be lights in this world uh, pointing to Jesus. And so we pray that we would live lives empowered by your spirit, fueled by your grace, that seek to live in a way that honours Jesus and your grace and mercy to us. Father, Pray for us here this morning who come with all kinds of flaws and foibles and battles and issues. Father, we thank you that nothing 
Nothing is too hard for you, we pray. I pray for any brother or sister here this morning who feels trapped in a particular sin, that, Father, they would come and do business with you this morning and throw themselves afresh onto your, into your hands. Father, thank you that you're the great God who helps us overcome. And so, Father, help us to grow and become who we really are, beloved children of yours. And Father, we pray as well that we would be a community who when we see a brother or sister making decisions which are outside of your will and outside of your word and we see that as being dangerous to them, that we'd be courageous and brave enough and loving enough to speak with them. Not for any sense of satisfaction or joy for ourselves, but for the good of our brother or sister because we love them. So Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.